Welcome, everybody. I'd like to uh, go ahead and get started. I have to apologize right at the beginning. I teach at 1.30, so I'm going to duck out, and if we're still going at 10 after 1, Alex uh, has agreed to sort of thank Ken officially and close this down, but uh, feel free to continue on if you'd like, although we usually end up shortly after 1. Uh, I'm really happy that uh, Kenneth Schultz could be here today. We have two uh, functions. Before his talk, I want to do the first one, which is to award him with this certificate. His book was selected by our committee last, well, actually two years ago, but we haven't been able to get you out here <laughs> as the Furnace Award winner, and it'll go up on one of these plaques. Again. But this is for you to do what you would like Thank to you. do. And we will add one like it up on our wall. Oh, it's up there. All right. The Furnace Award, for those of you who don't know, has been awarded by Mershon for a long time. And it is for an author's first book that we consider to be the best book that year in the areas of interest to the center. And the only real criteria is that it's the author's first book. And so, Ken, thank you very much for writing such a great book. The book was A Democracy in Course of Diplomacy that Cambridge University Press published. And it's not that book that Ken's going to talk about today. <laughs> so it's his next project. Beyond that book, he has a new piece coming out called The Politics of Risking Peace. Do hawks or doves deliver the olive branch? And I have a sense from last night's conversation that is getting closer to what we're going to hear about uh, today. He has many other articles in political analysis, international organization, several in the international organization, Journal of Conflict Resolution, British Journal of Political Science, and so on. He began his career after graduating from Stanford with a Ph.D. at Princeton. I think he was there four or five years, then went to UCLA, and he's now associate professor at Stanford University. So without further ado, Ken Schultz, Thank thanks you. for coming. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very, very honored uh, to have won the award and delighted to be here uh, to talk to you about some of the new stuff that I'm working on. Uh, the book, uh, Democracy and Course of Diplomacy, dealt with the question of how domestic political competition influences the way democratic governance use threats of military force uh, in course of diplomacy. Uh, and what I'm doing in this newer project, and some of which I want to show you today, is uh, to continue the uh, focus on the role of domestic political competition and party competition in foreign policy but now I'm, I'm focusing on the politics of peace processes, how countries make peace with long-term adversaries. Um, I thought after many years of studying the causes of war that studying peacemaking would be a somewhat more uplifting, um, less depressing topic until I discovered how few successful cases there are of peacemaking, um, which is of course bad for the world and bad for a social scientist interested in a, in a large N. Um, what I've been doing in this project, this, the politics of risking peace, is to think about uh, particularly the domestic political uh, costs and benefits of attempting to initiate cooperation with a long-term adversary. Uh, I start with the assumption, which I think is, is, is borne out, that uh, would-be peacemakers uh, face all kinds of political risks in attempting to to open talks or to make cooperative gestures in order to resolve long-term rivalries. Um, of course, there may be hardline factions within the country who are opposed uh, to any opening with the rival country. These hardline factions might have uh, important electoral clout. They may also manifest their opposition uh, in less uh, democratic ways, such as we saw with the assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Rabin, uh, for his work uh, in efforts to make peace with the Palestinians. Even if most people in a country are not hard line, though, they have been taught by years, decades of rivalry uh, to fear and distrust the rival state. And this is going to create the possibility for uh, political oppositions to exploit that fear and distrust in order to undermine would-be peacemakers. So this is, this is the question that I've been, been focusing on in my research, is how is it can governments, and particularly democratic government, governments facing this situation, manage the domestic political costs uh, of negotiating peace? Now, one of the uh, 
one of the ways in which my, my thinking on this has gone, it's brought me uh, to revisit this old saw that we've almost certainly all heard, that it takes a Nixon to go to China. Right, that there are some advanced, that, that uh, uh, political leaders who have hawkish reputations, uh, come from more hawkish political parties, uh, may have advantages in attempting to negotiate peace with long-term adversaries. This is a conventional wisdom that, that gets bounced around an awful lot. I've, I've seen it recently um, uh, in reference to whether Ariel Sharon can make peace with the Palestinians. Uh, there was a lot of interest uh, recently um, in a uh, very dramatic peace initiative uh, in India vis-à-vis uh, -vis Pakistan uh, by then Prime Minister Vajpayee, uh, who was leader of the Hindu Nationalist Party, and this was seen as another example of a kind of a, a bold peacemaking by, by, by a, a longtime hawk from, from the more hawkish party, political party in India. Uh, until he recently lost power, not really because of the peace process, and so questions are now as to whether the, whether the Congress Party will be able to continue uh, the initiatives that were started. Um, we've seen it with respect to George Bush, as to whether Bush the Hawk can make peace with anybody. Um, so it, it, it's out, this is an idea that's out there uh, in, in, kind of the in the conversation, but it's not one that has been really very well um, either theorized or, or subject to rigorous empirical testing. And so what I would like to do today in this talk is uh, to do a little bit of that. I wanna, what I first want to do is to differentiate between what I think are two uh, theories as to why it might be that hawks make good peacemakers. Um, and then uh, talk through the logic of those theories. And then I want to present some em empirical evidence uh, that bears on one set of these theories. And I'm going to draw this empirical evidence from the canonical case of a Nixon going to China, that being the case of Nixon in China, and I'm going to, to explore uh, the, the politics of the opening with China, largely by asking this counterfactual question in the title, could Humphrey have gone to China? Um, to try to understand whether or not there would have been a difference in the political ability of a Richard Nixon versus a Hubert Humphrey to make the opening uh, with China. Now, to give you the punchline up front before I wade into all this, I obviously cannot answer the question of whether Humphrey could have gone to China because uh, he didn't get elected, and that's, of course, part of the counterfactual challenge that I confront here. But what I will show, um, using data from the 1968 National Election Study, uh, is that there was a very marked asymmetry in the political costs and benefits of pr uh, proposing an opening with China. And that whereas such a proposal would have been extremely beneficial to Richard Nixon, it would have been very electorally costly to Hubert Humphrey. And that's where I'm going to be headed. So let me start, though, uh, by talking about uh, two sets of arguments as to why it is that Hawks might have advantages in making peace. Uh, the first one, which, I, which I, my sense is, is, is the one that mostly floats around out there when people think about this argument, I refer to it as the credibility argument. Uh, and I have show some citations there. Uh, it's, this is one that's been around, that's kind of, out, again, out there in the ether for a long time. Kukerman and Tomasi are the ones who are usually cited as having formalized this. The uh, credibility argument starts with the assumption that voters face policy uncertainty, which is to say, in this particular context, they don't know if making peace with the rival is a good idea or not. Is it in their interests? If they were leaders, would they make peace? All right. Politicians, the political elite, by virtue of their position, have private, have private information about the quality of the policy. That is, they know better than the voters do whether or not peace is in the national interest. At the same time, politicians are known to be biased in either a hawkish or a dovish direction based on their past reputation or the constituencies within their party. And so faced with this kind of situation, uh, voters must attempt to infer uh, whether or not pe a, a proposal to make peace is in their interest, and they do so taking into account the, bi the known bias of the leader. So the story here is that when a leader with a hawkish reputation advocates peace, this is a pretty clear signal that this leader's private information tells him that peace is a good idea. Right? Because a hawkish leader wouldn't advocate peace if he didn't, if he didn't know it was a good thing. On the other hand, so, so the first hypothesis that emerges out of here is that when leaders with hawkish reputations advocate peace, 
Voters become more supportive of cooperative policies. That if they say, well, Nixon would only say we should make peace with China if it were really true, because Nixon wouldn't say that otherwise. The, the, the second hypothesis that goes along with this is that when a, dub, when a leader with a dovish reputation makes the same argument, it doesn't have the same level of credibility. Because a dove might be advocating peace not because it's in the national interest, but because he's a squishy dove, right? And he's willing to make peace on, on unfavorable terms or under uh, unfavorable conditions. So when a voter sees uh, a dove advocate peace, they're like, well, wait a minute, you know, what, we really, what can we really infer from that? We expect a dove to, to advocate this. All right, so the, the, what's going on in this set of arguments here is that the reputation of the leader influences the way voters, what the voters infer about the quality of the policy that's being advocated. And hawks are in a better position to advocate for peace by building support for those policies. All right, this, the second set of arguments that I want to make, and these are the ones I want to develop a little more, and these are the ones that are all subject to empirical testing, because as you can see, uh, I have a dog in this fight. Um, I have an article forthcoming which, which develops this, uh, this argument formally, and I just want to go through the intuition uh, for you. It's relatively straightforward, what I call the electability argument. This argument starts with the assumption that voters are faced with what I call, what we call politician uncertainty. That is, they don't know how extreme or moderate the politician is. All right? They're trying to figure out, you know, are we dealing with somebody who's a pragmatic, moderate leader, uh, who is tough enough but not too tough, uh, or are we dealing with somebody who's, who is extreme uh, in their policies? I assume that politicians have private information about their own preferences. And so, for example, we might think about politicians as being arrayed along a continuum of being, they could be hardliners, moderates, um, peaceniks, you know, a mix of hard and soft types. And the voters are trying to try to judge what kind of politician they're facing. And in this, in this view, what I assume is that uh, these reputations, these hawk-dove reputations, uh, which are, are going to be correlated with party labels, and that, and that they serve to tell voters the possible types of, that a leader can be. So, so I start with these. Let's assume that there's, there's, a, kind of a, there's a party that's known to be hawkish, right? and, and that this hawkish party has moderate and hardline factions within it. Uh, and so part of the uncertainty facing a voter is, is, a, is a candidate from the hawkish party... Um, is he or she moderate or hardline? Does, what is his or her power relative to the moderate and hardline factions? Who really calls the shots in the hawkish party? And similarly, the dovish party uh, tends to have factions that are moderate or peacenik, or softline, uh, if you prefer. And again, the question is, which faction really controls, uh, calls the shots in this party? And what is, is any given leader from the hawk or dove party, uh, what are their preferences going to be? What this means, what this assumption means, is that you have a dove party which is very much susceptible to the charge of being too soft. All right? And so what you find is that dove le leaders of the dove party need to guard against the charge of being soft. They need to prove to voters that they are not peaceniks or captive of their peacenik wing. But similarly, you have a hawk party which... Uh, which is more, not susceptible to the charge of being too soft. If anything, it's susceptible to the charge of being too hard line. Uh, and to the extent that there are moderates in the Hawk Party, these people need to try to reassure voters uh, that, they are, that they are pragmatic, moderate, not uh, hardliner warmongers. All right, so you get this. This is kind of the operating assumption of parties as being kind of overlapping but offset distributions of preference types. And because of the dynamic that I just mentioned... Right, that that uh, the incentives to, to advocate cooperative policies are different depending on when you're in a hawkish or dovish party. Right? Moderate hawks need to distinguish themselves from their hardliners. And one of the ways they can signal their own moderation is by, by, by playing nice, right? by proposing a cooperative policy. That's something that the hardliners are not going to be likely to do. By contrast, a moderate dove needs to, con needs to convince voters it's not a peacenik. And the way the moderate dove does this is by taking the action that the peaceniks aren't going to like, uh, which is by being tough. All right. So what this means is that, it, it, that the model that I present in this paper shows is that if anybody proposes cooperation, then it tends to come from either a moderate hawk or from a peacenik dove. 
Right? Moderate doves don't like proposing cooperation because they get tarred with the charge of being too soft, whereas the moderate hawk does not, is not susceptible to that charge. What this means is that the same policy proposal, that is, let's cooperate with this other state, is seen as moderate when coming from a hawk. It's a sign of moderation coming from a hawk, but it's a sign of extremism when coming from a dove. All right, which leads to these hypotheses. When a hawk advocates peace, it is a sign of moderation that leads to increased electoral support, whereas when a dove advocates peace, it is a sign of extremism that leads to decreased electoral support. All right? So when Nixon says we should, we should make peace with China, the reaction is, all right, he's not the kind of hothead we all thought he might be. He's changed, he's become more pragmatic. Whereas the assumption is if, if somebody in the Democratic Party, Humphrey in this case, uh, with a very visible anti-war, very uh, you know, um, pacifist wing in the 68 election had made the same uh, proposal, people would have reacted with, my gosh, he's a captive of the extremists. All right, so this is what I want to test. Now, I, I titled the, uh, the paper, Could Humphrey... Uh, let me just say, uh, these, these, these sets of hypotheses are not contradictory. They're not mutually exclusive. They could both be right. Um, and, and there is a paper associated with this that I'd be happy to send people in which I test both of them, find support for both of them. But in the talk today, I want to focus on testing these, these two hypotheses, the electability argument. Notice that the first set of arguments is primarily about how voters respond to signals from the leaders and update their preferences for policy. Whereas this set of hypotheses is about how voters, in responding to leaders, update their preferences for the candidates themselves. And that's where I'm going to test this. Now, um, framing the t titling this paper, Could Humphrey Have Gone to China, underscores the counterfactual challenge associated, associated with this. But if we're going to say that, okay, well, we know that it, going to China was great for Nixon. He, he, he moved public opinion towards China in a very dramatic fashion. He also he saw it as a, as a key element of his 72 re-election campaign. Right. But can we know that, the, that or so that's you know, some ex-ante support for hypothesis one, but what we really want to know is that whether, if Humphrey could have done the same thing, would he have enjoyed the same benefits, or would there have been the costs that these hypotheses associate with it? The, the problem here, of course, is that we have two problems. First of all, right, it's one hypothesis, had he been elected president in 68, Humphrey would not have made the trip to China in 72. Of course, we know that he didn't win the election in 68, so we have no way of knowing whether he could have done that. So my solution to this problem, I call this the easy counterfactual challenge because I have, a, I have a, a relatively straightforward solution to it, which is I, I'm going to reframe the question a little bit, focus on the 1968 election campaign, and ask what would have been the political ramifications of a proposal to make peace with China in the midst of that campaign. Right. And reframing it to the political campaign has an advantage. That the nice thing about political campaigns is that you get to observe both candidates at the same time. We have polls that allow us to assess how voters might react to different positions that those candidates take. Um, and so that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to, that's what I'm going to focus on data from the 1968 National Election Study. That remain, leaves us with the hard counterfactual challenge that's caused by this, um, if the hypothesis is that Humphrey would have incurred substantial political costs in proposing a dramatic opening with China, we observe that Humphrey did not, in fact, propose a dramatic opening with China uh, during the 1968 campaign. Neither, in fact, did Nixon. I'll show you in a moment. Both, both um, sent, some very, sent some tentative signals that they were willing to be more flexible in, in, in relations with China, uh, but neither came out with any kind of very bold proposal in, in, in that direction. So the problem that we're faced with is how do you measure or even confirm the existence of political costs that rational politicians choose not to incur? Right? If Humphrey would have incurred costs for making this proposal, we observe that he did not make the proposal. How can we know that he didn't make the proposal? Because there are, there are political costs lurking out there that he rationally chose not to incur. All right. So the method that I'm going to use in this that I use here, first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to take advantage of the fact that there's pre-existing variation in voters' perceptions of the candidate's position on China. Right? There's, going to be, there's pre-existing variation in where the voters thought the candidates were on this issue, or on related issues, I'll show you in a moment. And I'm going to use this pre-existing variation to estimate a very straightforward voting model to sense, well, what is the effect of those perceptions on voting behavior? 
then I'm going to make a, an assumption, probably a Her Herculean assumption, that if either candidate had made a proposal in the course of the campaign to open with China, that voters' perceptions would have shifted. That is, vote, the, the voters would have, would have converged on the belief that the candidate making that proposal uh, was likely to make an opening with China. All right, so then what I'm going to do is then use the baseline estimates that I got in step one to estimate counterfactually what the effects of such a proposal will be. And as you'll see, what I'll do is essentially consimulate what the election would look like within this subsample under different scenarios of, of one or the other candidate making a proposal to open with China. Okay, there's pre-existing variation. The NES asked, asked this question, the closest question I could get here, uh, a question, which party do you think is more likely to allow farmers and businessmen to trade with communist countries? Um, this isn't a perfect question for my, for my, for my needs, uh, but it is quite good. Of course, the issue of trade with China was one of the central issues uh, uh, um, uh, that was, that was uh, brought up by the, uh, the efforts to make the opening. You can see what the responses were here. 26% uh, said the Democrats would do it, 61 62% roughly saw no difference. About 12% thought that the Republicans were more likely to do this. Um, so this, you know, kind of this reinforces the sense of uh, prior beliefs of voters being that the Democrats are probably in, gen in general the softer party on this issue. Um, but there's still, some, there's still some variation here. Now, one thing I just want to flag for you, and I'm not going to deal with it at length, but there's an unfortunate way about the way this question was asked. It was about the relative positions of these two parties as opposed to their absolute positions on trade with communist countries. For example, you can't know whether voters who saw no difference thought that both parties were very likely to trade with, allow trade with communists or very unlikely to. And so I, I've, I've exerted a lot of effort to see if one can tease out of these responses more information about the absolute positions. And frankly, there's a certain amount of black magic and voodoo involved in doing that. Um, nonetheless, I've, I've attempted it. And, and all the results that I've gotten in trying to do that are similar to the ones that I'm going to present to you today. So I'm going to use these poll responses for all their problems uh, with, the, with, the, with the acknowledgement that I've tried to go a little deeper into it and, found, and been able to replicate the results with a better measure. Just quickly to say, does it make sense? These are, do these perceptions make sense given what happened in the 68 campaign? Well, I'll just show you a couple of headlines here. I don't know if you can read. This is from the New York Times. The candidates in foreign affairs, little choice for voters seems evident. This was like a, a summary article in October of 68, which basically underscores that, in fact, there, there weren't, you know, you know massive differences on the, in foreign affairs um, uh, available to voters, you know, suggesting that the 62% who saw no difference uh, weren't necessarily clueless. Nonetheless, for careful voters, both candidates had signaled a willingness to be more flexible with respect to China. Um, here's a headline, Humphrey Vow's Quest for Peace. All right, Humphrey, of course, during the, during the 68 campaign faces uh, uh, anti-war uh, um, uh, uh, challenger in the form of Eugene McCarthy. Um, he is trying to, to uh, in some ways, uh, shake off the charges of being a warmonger for his association with the Vietnam War. Particularly during the nominating process, he talks a lot about making peace. And there's particularly here, you've got to be willing to deal directly with the Soviet Union and communist China. Interestingly, you get a lot of this stuff from Humphrey before he wins the nomination, after the nomination, not so much, right? Because, of course, there he's trying to appeal to the more general electorate. Nixon also was signaling greater flexibility. Of course, he'd written a 67 foreign affairs article uh, saying that we need to start rethinking our policy towards China. I'm not sure that many voters would have read that foreign affairs article, uh, but he did give speeches, and there, there's a prominent headline on the front page of the New York Times, Nixon has, has eased his views on the communist bloc, where he was saying, look, it's going to be in, in the next decade, uh, American presidents are going to have to sit down and talk with Chinese leaders. Right, so there was, there was a basis for voters to see either of these candidates as likely to have done this. And in fact, just to show you very quickly here, if you, if you take that question about uh, which party is more likely to tr allow trade, and you map it against the information level of the respondent, as judged by the NES, what you find is that actually as, as the information level of the respondent went up, they were more likely to see one party or the other as likely to do this. All right? And in fact, the people who thought that the Republicans were more likely to allow trade with communist countries are not idiots, as some people have suggested to me. These are, in fact, some of the most highly informed. 
this trend may not look very dramatic to you, but if you, but as you, uh, if you do a more uh, detailed analysis of, these, of the origins of these perceptions, information level is positively correlated with thinking that either party is going to allow trade with communists. All right, so it's not, just, it's not just fools who thought that Nixon was going to do this. Of course they weren't fools. They understand the theory. These are the most sophisticated voters in the sample. Okay, now one other thing that I needed here uh, is uh, respondents' positions on China. Uh, respondents were first asked the screening question, uh, which required them to know that most of China, that is the mainland, is communist and not currently a member of the United Nations. 61% of the sample actually knew this. Um, they, these were then asked two follow-on questions. Uh, the first was, should China be admitted to the United Nations? And the second was, if you thought that China should not be admitted to the UN, but they were anyway, should the US get out of the UN or stay in? All right, so what this allows me to do based on the pattern of responses here is to generate what I think are three types of voters. Uh, a soft, what I call a soft voter, which was 40% of those that made it past the first screening question, thought that China should be admitted to the UN. Medium voters thought that China should not be admitted, but the U.S. should stay in the U.N. if it were admitted. And uh, my hard voters are only about 9% of the sample, that China shouldn't be admitted, and the U.S. should get out of the U.N. if it was. Of course, we can't know how many of those people would have wanted, just wanted the U.S. out of the U.N., regardless of whether China was admitted. Uh, nonetheless, um, I think a pretty good all right, it's a way of typologizing the different voters. And just to tell you, in, when testing the credibility hypothesis, what I did was I, went, I looked to see whether or not the voters' perceptions of the candidates' positions influenced their view on China right, uh, here, whether they were soft, medium, or hard. And I found some evidence to suggest that those, who perceive, those people who perceived the Republicans as softer on this issue were themselves more likely to be soft, whereas the perception of where the Democrats were on this issue didn't have a significant impact on people's views on China. Right, there's some evidence that's, 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 that's suggestive of what's going on there in the credibility story. Now let me turn though, to testing the electability hypotheses. What I do here, just to kind of set up what my test was, I'm estimating a very kind of standard voting model here. It's, um, I, I have a, 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 my dependent variable is the actual voting behavior of the, of the, the reported voting behavior of the respondent. And um, they could have voted for Humphrey, voted for Nixon, they could have voted for Wallace, and they could have abstained. Um, so I, I kept abstention here as a possibility in the model. And, uh, towards the end, I'll, I'll show you what one of the payoffs of, of having abstention as a possibility there. And my independent variables, my main ones were this perception of the party's positions. You know, did you think the Republicans or Democrats were soft on this? The position, your position on China and the UN, and then a whole bunch of control variables, all the kind of standard controls that you'd want to stick in a vote choice model, ideology, you know, economic conditions, income, gender, race, all the good stuff. Uh, position on Vietnam, of course, Vietnam is the main foreign policy issue in the 68 election. I estimated this equation both with and without controls for positions on Vietnam. The Vietnam controls do matter, but they don't influence my, the results that I'm going to show you. Uh, and I used a, um, um, a multinomial ordered probit to estimate this. This is just a, um, uh, kind of a newfangled technique uh, that I'm using to estimate the, this, this four choices that they have that are unordered. Okay. Uh, I don't want to understand any of the coefficients of this because you can stare at coefficients of these kinds of regressions for hours and not learn anything. I have a couple of graphs that are going to summarize the, the important implications. What I have here in this graph is um, I, I, I'm, what I'm graphing here is the predicted probability of voting for Nixon in the two-party race. So, it's the, so the, on the y-axis is the probability of voting for Nixon given that you vote for Nixon or Humphrey. So I'm just holding aside the Wallace and abstention uh, for, for the moment. Um, and I'm, I'm showing essentially nine different cases. For the, the lines here show you three different voters. I'm going to show you the typical soft voter, the typical medium voter, and the typical hard voter as classified by their views on China. And then I'm showing it under three scenarios. What if that voter saw no difference between the parties? What if that voter thought the Democrats were more likely to allow trade? What if that voter thought the Republicans were more likely to allow trade? And the best way to interpret, to think about this, is to start with no difference and then move in these directions. And just the solid lines are changes that are statistically significant. That is, that we can, we can, uh, we can know that these are actually measurable changes, whereas the dotted lines we can't, are insignificant changes, as we can't rule out that there was no change between the no difference category. All right, notice what happens here. What happens if you shift from no difference to the Democrats more likely to allow trade? Well, the typical soft line voter 
was already a very strong Humphrey voter to begin with. And he doesn't really help himself among soft liners. Right? This is the thing going... So uh, Humphrey's helped if this line goes down and he's hurt if the line goes up, right? So he, he doesn't really help himself that much among soft line voters. Look what happens among medium and hard voters. They swing towards Nixon, right? So if, if you go from no difference to a situation where the, where the voter sees the Democrat is more like, Democrats is more likely to allow trade, you, he loses the support of hard line and medium voters. By contrast, if you do this change, go from no difference to the Republicans being the ones more likely to allow trade, Nixon makes big gains among soft line voters. He makes an insignificant gain among medium voters. He may make some have some losses among the hard voters, but you can't rule out that this is that this is uh, the zero a zero change. All right. So what's going on here is that what this suggests, just looking at these individual typical voters, is that is that a proposal to allow trade by the Democrats scares away hard and medium voters from Humphrey, but a proposal by the Republicans draws soft line voters to Nixon, but doesn't appreciably lose him voters in the hard, among the hard and medium types. Yes, a question of clarification. Um, Democrat, uh, independent, Republican. Roughly, yeah. I, I did vary all the other independent variables. Now, if you don't do that, they move up and down, but none of, none of the other, none of the, which ones are significant changes. Okay. All right, this is a typical voter, but of course what we really care about is the election outcome. So what I did here was to um, use these estimates uh, to estimate the distribution of voting behavior uh, in the three different scenarios. And... Um, well, actually, I did four scenarios here. One is the actual perceptions that voters had. One is, what if all voters perceived no difference? The other one is, what if all voters moved to thinking that the Democrats were more likely to allow trade? What if all voters moved to the Republicans more likely? Now, moving all of the voters to one side or the other is clearly unrealistic. All right, so the magnitudes of the effects that I'm showing here, you can't really take all that seriously. But the ordering of the effects, you can. All right, and what we find here... Again, I'm looking here at Nixon's expected share of the two-party vote under these scenarios. What you find here is moving from no difference, right? Nixon gains if either Humphrey makes the proposal, or that the Democrats are all seen as more likely to vote, or if he makes it, right? We get the, the V for Nixon, or should I say V for Nixon here, right? That Nixon wins either way, right? If Humphrey makes the proposal, he loses the support of the medium and hard voters, and that helps Nixon. If Nixon makes the proposal, Nixon draws the soft line voters to him, and he doesn't lose hard and medium voters. He wins either way. All right? So, that's, so, so this is kind of the, the key to the story here, right? That, 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 that it's electorally costly for the Democrats to make this proposal, uh, whereas it's beneficial for the Republican to make that very same proposal. Again, the magnitude of these effects is somewhat in question. You also have to remember that I'm estimating this only among the small, the subset of voters who knew that China was communist and knew that, the, you know, that um, it wasn't in the UN. So I am estimating, doing these estimates among, uh, it's about, when all is said and done, about 600 of the, of the 1,400 respondents to the NES. So it's a sampling of, but of the ones that care, would probably care the most about foreign policy. Uh, and hence, that may also explain why some of these effects look very large. Uh, nonetheless, I think that this, you know, this is very strongly consistent with, uh, with, the, with the story I was going to show you, what I was telling you. Let me just show you, this is uh, the expected election results under those four scenarios where I now I've included the Wallace and abstentions. Right, so this is going to be the share of voters in the sample um, that vote for Nixon, vote for Humphrey, Wallace, or abstain. And so... What you can see here, again, if you kind of go from the no difference to the actual here, that, uh, that you know, there's a huge, huge swing of votes towards Nixon uh, if, if the Republicans are seen as allowing trade. And there's this, there's this desertion from Humphrey uh, relative to these if, uh, if, if, if everybody thinks that Humphrey is more likely to, uh, to allow trade. Um, we could talk about specifics on this, but I'm running, running out of time here. Uh, let me just let me just wrap up then about what I'm doing here. I mean, the, the you know obviously there's this this very clear pattern here that that a, that a proposal to make trade with China, if you believe these simulations, would have been very beneficial for Nixon and very bad for Humphrey. Okay, so we understand why Humphrey didn't do it. It should raise the question in your mind. Well, then why didn't Nixon make such a proposal during the '68 campaign? After all, it would have helped him. Uh, 
there's any number of reasons why he might not have done so, but, but, but asking this question uh, as I move to my implication sections of this talk is useful to, to point out what, what the first thing is not an implication that I'm trying to make from this, which is that I'm not saying from this that hawks will make pe- always make peace and doves will never make peace. Right? Um, what I have shown here is an asymmetry in the domestic political costs and benefits of doing this. Uh, to go from that asymmetry uh, to the much stronger statement uh, uh, in the first line would be to assume that um, domestic politics is all that matters to leaders. And I don't necessarily think that's true. There's lots of things going on, right? Uh, Leaders have to think about their own assessment of the national interest. They have to make calculations as to how the other state will respond to a peace initiative. Um, So there's lots of reasons why, in spite of the costs and benefits that I've just shown, a hawk might choose not to propose peace, and a dove might say, well, damn the torpedoes, I'm going to do it anyway. Nonetheless, what I've shown here is an asymmetry in the domestic political costs and benefits of proposing peace, particularly, as I said, a hawk who proposes peace attracts soft voters without measurable loss among hardliners, and a dove who proposes peace loses the support of medium and hardline voters without an appreciable increase in support among soft voters. The final point point I want to make here uh, and this is something that as I go forward in this research I've been thinking a lot about, is the role of the, that the party system plays in this story in weakening hardline factions. Right, that, uh, we find many peace processes are bedeviled by uh, hardline groups, sometimes we call them spoilers, that is groups that choose to, to undermine peace processes in various ways. And so a central challenge of making peace is to find a way uh, to diminish the influence of hardline groups. I think that the evidence that I've shown here today is suggestive of a way in which a party system might serve that that purpose. In particular, if you think about the hardline voters here, a very small part of the sample, um, you know, the the real question for them is, okay, what if if Nixon were to do this? What if Nixon were to propose peace? Where are you going to go? All right. Are you going to vote for Humphrey instead? Right? Most of the hardline voters, because of the nature of the party system, don't have a really credible exit, exit opportunity. Right? And just to kind of underscore what happens among these hardline voters, I, 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 I looked at the voting behavior of the hardliners um, uh, under these different scenarios. And what you notice here, um, it, you know, particularly as you move here from there being no difference to, to Nixon making the proposal, Nixon, Nixon's loss among hardliners is imperceptible. Right? There is a gain for Humphrey up there, but it's not coming from Nixon supporters. It's coming from people who are on the fence already, like people who are going to abstain in gray, or some people who might have voted for Wallace. Right? So the hardliners who were sitting on the fence already, for whatever reason, might shift to Humphrey in this case. But Nixon doesn't lose his hardline base. He doesn't, he doesn't repel them. Whereas, of course, if you go from no difference to the Democrat more likely to, the hardliners flee uh, flee Humphrey in droves. And so I think there's something here that's, as, I move, as I move forward in this research about the role that party systems might play in containing uh, hardline opposition to peace. Uh, I will stop there and, and open it to questions. I'm going to let you take your own question. Okay. Yes. Places more approachable now than they were in the past. 
Yeah, the turnout question, I, I, I was very quick towards the end, but I, 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 I've, I've encountered this question before, and that actually caused, I hadn't actually included abstention as an option, and of course it was like, of course I should see whether the hardliners sit on their hands, and I'm, I, at least the evidence doesn't, doesn't suggest that's what, that's what goes on here, that's the, which, is, which is why I did that. Um, with respect to this question about you know independent observation points, yeah, what I should I should say that um, uh, you know I'm assuming here, well, the, the the model that I that I discussed earlier and which came up with which which motivated these predictions does assume that these are equilibrium an equilibrium that holds when trust of the other side is extremely low. All right, that is, is that you're pretty sure that the other side is dominated by hardliners themselves. All right, which I think is, 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 is factually kind of the right place to start. Like if you're studying rivalries, this is the right place to start. But it doesn't, it doesn't, you doesn't rule out the possibility that if there were opportunities to learn something about the other side, that the trust could increase potentially um, and change the dynamic, or at least make it safer for doves to make peace. And again, the prediction is not that doves will never make peace. It's only one. That, it's only that there's this differential, this differential uh, risks in doing so. Um, so, uh, so I do think that that's something that I, that I could could take into account. Now, this issue about um, in, in, about salience. Um, Right, the question is, right, the, the China story, it's, you know, how many people really cared all that much about China in 68 versus pe people in Israel that care about it. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not entirely sure which way that would cut. And I'm, I mean, maybe, right, um, see, I'm, I'm, I'm estimating this, my, my results among those, that group that is, that is informed at least enough to know what's going on here. Whether it's salient to them or not is a somewhat different issue, but they're clearly informed enough. And for my orderings to make to be true, that is, in other words, for you to for you to go from this to say that to say that in the full electorate the ordering of outcomes would be the same, you have to assume that all those uninformed voters that I'm not estimating are just moving randomly. They're just noise. Okay. So so in some ways, if I could get the same result among a, a, an electorate that was much more informed, then I wouldn't be worried about the noise of the uninformed. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, in a sense, what that means is they're not going to filter it all through the story they're being told, the narrative that's being told, the narrative of what is happening. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, my memory is 68 election. Nixon was the peace candidate, and Humphrey was the happy warrior, and. Um, if you're titled to McCarthy, then you would have the right. See, I, I think you're just thinking of Nixon, you know, today. But at the time, 68, Nixon was considered, you know, the peace candidate. So, like, if you're thinking about what voters are thinking about at the time, uh, they're not seeing him as a hawk. I mean, Humphrey was pretty much a hawk. In foreign affairs. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, instantly, yeah, definitely. And Nixon had a cold warrior reputation, but he had written a 67 article. He was soft on, on China, uh, uh, you know, or soft, you know, in the way you're using the term. And he had this reputation. 
Okay, let me let me let me just address this quickly. I mean, the the I mean, first of all, I mean, if you look at this, right, the, about this relations with communist countries, which is which is tapping a, a broader issue than just the Vietnam War, which I grant you is the big issue in '68. But on this, the prior reputation of the Democrats is as the softer party. And if you also again think about what, my, what I, how I'm conceptualizing Hawk and Dove here, and I, and I think I'm doing maybe a little unconventionally, which is getting me into trouble. But as as a Hawk and Dove as being um, prior distributions over over types, you ask the question. Um, you ask the question, where where are the people who are who are who have been talking about recognizing China, who have been talking about you know normalizing relations with the PRC? From even earlier on, it's mostly liberal Democrats who are doing so. Right? To the extent that there's a party that can be tagged as soft on this issue, all right, it is it is the Democrats. Like the Democrats worry about this, and we know this because Kennedy worried about it, and even Johnson worried about uh, you know how poisonous it would be politically for him to try to make an opening to China. Right? Nixon, on the other hand, is in a, is representing a party whose distribution of, of kind of the, what what could they be is further to the right, right? You can't tag Nixon with the soft label, right? And maybe that now he's proposing soft, but again, that's the signal of moderation. You, but you can't say, oh, you know, that, that pinko Nixon, the way you can charge a Democrat. And that's all I'm saying, is that there's one party here that's more, vo because of the factions within the party, because... But you see, but you see what Humphrey's doing in '68. I mean, Humphrey is showing exactly. My, Humphrey is he's straddling a party that's that's got a big vociferous pacifist wing to it, right? That's you know, and at the same time he's associated with the war himself. So he's a bit of a puzzle, right? Is Humphrey is yeah okay? You know, he's he's got this support, past support for Johnson's war. At the same time, he's got this very vocal pacifist wing. What you know, it's legit. A legit a vote. I legitimately wonder who who will Humphrey be if we elect him. But right. There was a Scoop Jackson wing in the Democratic Party. Sure. And yeah. There was certainly. Um, uh, just on this question about peacemaking, I mean, whether whether we were really at war with China. I mean, I, I I'm using the term making peace in a broad sense, oh, well, that's right? That's it's it's this is I, I really I'm talking about the politics of rapprochement, but you know, but, but the political right. discourse of the day says that single syllable words are better than three syllable French <laughs> 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 But that, that's the point. Is, well, they can't be only slightly better. It was peace because Kissinger and Nixon wanted a realist foreign policy based on, yes, you know, but all that, on yeah. balancing the Soviet Union. Absolutely. How do we have a hard line policy against the Soviet Union? Well, we got to make peace with their neighbor. And at the time, the Chinese and the, and the Soviets, they had border classes, yeah. clashes, 
And he was serving really, that's, I'm actually 69, but so, yeah. That explains why Nixon was a moderate. With respect to China, right? That you're, uh, you're, you, what you're explaining there is the origins of his, of, his, of his read of the national interest with respect to China. He is a moderate with respect to China precisely because he is more hardline with respect to the Soviet Union. That's fine. You're explaining the origins of his preference ordering, and I'm, ta- I'm trying to then talk about the implications of it. So there's nothing contradictory about what you're saying. I think I'm really stopped by comments that are, you know, I, I think peace is good with China. What he's saying, uh, you know, we want to get, you know, let's play the China card. This is the old China card, right? Yeah. So, so that seems to me like it's you know, that's how he sold it to the hardline within his party. But but if you, but but, with it, but to the general electorate, this you know he, he timed this thing to happen right before the election, you know, in early '72. He made sure that no Democrats could get over to China. He made a deal with them, you know, with you know that no Democrats could visit. He wanted he wanted this, right? And I think it was it was it was an appeal of moderation for you know. Yeah. Um, two quick questions. It seems to me that a key test of your hypothesis would be the interaction between party identification and this particular question. Because when you're talking about losing votes, that the hardliners are largely Republican, that the question of losing votes among them is sort of moved, right? And so what we need, I mean, to probably show is that among the Democrats is that interaction, though, mm-hmm. right? You have a particular dynamic among the swing voters, those guys who are in between on that seven point NES question, you have a different interaction with this particular question with the Republicans. And that would be where you get losing votes and not losing votes, uh, right? Because there's no hardline voters it's not that there are none. It's just no, that the no, modal no, one, the modal one, when I put up on that one thing, right. was not. But but this is pres- but, but in some ways, I mean, yeah, I, I think I could do that. But in some ways, that was precisely the point that I ended up with, which is the reason that the hardliners don't go anywhere. The reason that Nixon doesn't lose hardliners is because they are, in some, they are Republicans. They're conservative on every other issue, so that, that's why the kind of the, the, the dimensionality in the party system has, has, in some sense, sidelined them and rendered their opposition um, right. so, less relevant. So the hardliners are going to shift. But the question is, I mean, to think of it, not fact to us, what happens if the dark party yeah. shifts, right? I mean, there's the inversion of that uh, of the hardline question to the softliners. Also, so the most softliners are all Democrats. The two-party logic works the same for them, right? So they're comfy moving, shouldn't hurt him either. His base is also stuck voting for him, so who they're going to switch to, right? So the question is, I'm not quite sure where the electoral cost yeah. of either party comes, given your... Yeah, I, I can do this. You know, the, the correlation between party ID and this hardline softline thing is, is not as strong as you might think. That is, a, yeah, I mean... Um, I, again, I showed you the modal ones right. and, the a, and the average ones, but but there but there are there are plenty of there's plenty of variation there. So, but I, but I, I see what you're saying. I mean, um, yeah. Now, and just a second question. I guess the, the conversation you're having with Randy made me think about this. I'm wondering how much of this is the United States in 1968, after Vietnam, Asia, Democrats being in power, etc. Right, and then of course uh, the logic you have demonstrated here or suggested here is that the leaders are taking positions and uh, voters largely take their cues from them. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are as far as flipping that in terms. So that what we really have is very polarized electors, right? And these guys have to take positions that they don't need to make on, and it's really the public that's setting the position. I'm trying to very see India much by as far as speaking to this. But that strikes me as a Oh well, you know what I I wouldn't you know here's I I want to look at this case obviously it's a very interesting one for me you can't look at the aggregate electoral outcome and know whether or not making peace helped them or not what you needed would be individual level data to figure out whether or not you know whether, was it helping him or hurting him among people you know different different groups right he the, the peace the, his peace initiatives 
could have helped him and he still could have lost, right, obviously. Because I mean, most of the stories that I read about that election were primarily that it hinged on, on economic issues, right? So this doesn't say that, you know, hawks who make peace are guaranteed re-election with probability one. No, it just says that it increases their probability of re-election. You can't rule out from a single election outcome that that happens. So I, I would say that, the, that until, I, until I get, you know, some good uh, data on, on, you know, the Indian version of the National Election Study, um, you know, I, I just don't know how to answer that yet. I mean, certainly until until he lost the election, most of the reportage that I saw suggested that this was a good thing for him. That that in general he was that he was he would build support through this through these peace initiatives. And again, the story that the Hindu nationalists who were upset, well, where were they going to go, right? Right. So it's a similar story and one that I want to go into further. But this one election loss I, that doesn't phase me. I want to see the individual level data. Um, on your previous question about is this, is this being just done by the voters or yeah well there's there's actually a, a bigger concern that I have which is that the voters perceptions of the party positions are actually uh, projections not uh, not actual perceptions which I which I've been been working on so I think that this is all very difficult and of course I am I admit I'm making a very big leap when I do the counterfactual I'm assuming that I have a causal model here that my correlations are causal and that if I flip that independent variable that I will get, you know, flip that dependent variable. And so I've gone beyond, you know, so that's, that's obviously a big leap, but, um, but I just don't know how else to do this. So, okay. Uh, yes. Which one do you I mean, I, uh, yes, that is the, the best guess that there is a loss there. Uh, but if you look at if you look at this, this so this is um, this is this is the share of the two-party vote, which is why I did this other thing here, which was to look at. I mean, so hum, what, what's happening here is that the reason that Humphrey's share of the two-party vote is going is going up among those hardliners is not because Nixon's actually losing voters, but because hardliners who are on the fence anyway—that is, that they would have abstained. Go to go go shift a little bit to Humphrey. All right, so it's not that Nixon's losing his hardline base, but to the extent that there might be some hardliners on the fence, they're the ones that Humphrey picks up there. All right, and the, the, so you know, so the aggregate, you know, the, so that's why you know, the, you know, by, by only just looking at the probability of the two-party race, you're only getting part of part of the story here. Um, the other thing I would point out here is that these hard voters, they're they're really a, they're nine percent, right? The medium voters are in some ways more interesting. Because right, these were ones who were kind of ex ante against admission into the UN, and you know if we're going to we're going to put stock in insignificant changes, you know that that goes up there, which is actually the, the strongest asymmetry in the in the results, which is the way that this goes down and then up. All right. Um, with respect to this earlier thing, I, yeah, there were there were there were incremental changes in China policy going on earlier. But it's interesting. Uh, what, what I saw that was interesting there. Um, was was how, how cautious the Democrats were about this, right? You know, so first you have Kennedy, you know, uh, you know, uh, Eisenhower had told Kennedy that if that if Kennedy uh, that he wasn't going to criticize Kennedy's foreign policy unless he moved toward recognizing China, in which case Eisenhower would come out of retirement and attack him. Uh, there's well, there's there's there, there, proposed exchanging journalists, which is the first step. That's a Yeah, but, 
okay, but I, I, okay I, I see the opening to China as much more dramatic as that, right? Because I'm thinking about everything that's happened in uh, 72 and thereafter, right? I mean, the main thing that happens in 72 well, is the... Was, right, that, is, that was three years of extremely quiet Yes, no, I understand. Which I mean, in, in the quietness of the diplomacy, I don't. I mean, it doesn't bother me all that much. I mean, if I, you know, that that makes that makes good sense. They, my, I said towards the end, one of the one of the things that's not in the presentation I talked about today is that there's uncertainty about the, how the other side is going to react, right? And what you don't want to do is to make a big, you know, unilaterally make a big open, you know, initiative, and then find the other side's going to cut your hand off, right? So that there's all sorts of incentives. Initiative and the Chinese slams the door, so you give up. You know, you wait, and eventually the Chinese. Yeah, I, I just, I just, I think the magnitude of the initiatives that we're talking about is very different here. Right. There was no change in history policy. They did not change the initiative. It's a little bit of stuff. They didn't change the policy whatsoever. That's what history said. Uh, and what happened was the Chinese said, "Let's talk," which is radically different. There was nothing to ratify. Right, there was nothing to ratify. But it doesn't make any difference if you're doing it quietly, right? Yeah, but the difference here, I mean, here's the thing. So, so Nixon has this opportunity to, to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna go to the Chinese and we're gonna really, you know, seriously and Nixon Nixon my take of seventy two is that Nixon we gave them everything. I don't see we we gave them, you know, one China policy. We gave them most favored nation status shortly thereafter, right? I mean it was mostly you know, and they gave us vague promises about helping us in Vietnam, which they really couldn't deal with do anything with. So I so right, so Nixon in some sense gave, conceded some of the major points of the of the issue to China. Now, given that you're going to do that... But China right? conceded the absolute main issue because it's an asset Taiwan issue. If you're easy, it's a Taiwan part of China. You have to get up your defense and your question. I mean, they, they moved forward. That's a key overwhelming issue. The, the Chinese took The Chinese said that they had... They we had kicked, we kicked Taiwan out of the U.S. We kicked them out of all the organizations. I, the, the Taiwan, we, we all say that Taiwan and China are part of the government. They yeah. say that as a formula, he says, it worked out in the State Department in 1950. Right, but maybe we need to have a more conversation about this, you know, but, but uh, you know, that, that, that Kennedy, Kennedy and Johnson both were presented with plans to do much more than, than just exchanging journalists. There's a lot of evidence that Kennedy said, I can't do this until my second term. And we have Johnson on tape as saying, as responding to an advisor who said, you know, at some point we're going to have to talk to China, saying, yeah, but it's poisonous, I can't do that. All right? So, <coughs> you know, we, we have evidence of them having rejected much yeah, what, what turned out to be much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Apparently not. Yeah, I have better questions on Vietnam, actually. On issues that might be more important. Have you done that at all? No, I've only put the, you know, I could, I could do it. I haven't, I put the Vietnam stuff in largely as a control, but I haven't done this kind of counterfactual. What if, what if Nixon had gone even more dovish on Vietnam, or what if, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, it's a good. Isn't there a call about who do you perceive as more peace? more likely to make peace, Nixon or Hungary. I remember seeing that they asked voters, you know, this is a great question, who is more likely to have to be to have a peaceful foreign policy, Humphrey or Nixon? And Nixon overwhelmingly won that foreign policy. 
Yeah, but, 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 but hold on a minute here, right? Because that's different, right? Because I believe that Nixon was more likely to make peace too, even though he was the hawkish candidate, right? So it could very well be that, they, that, that voters understand that hawks make peace, that they are, that, right? That, well, I, I think then, what's your definition of a hawk? They're peaceful. Well, I, was, I think I was very clear about my definition of a hawk, right? The dozer warlike hawks are peaceful. Nixon's secret plan is to blast the hell out of Vietnam. It would be very peaceful. That's true. Yeah. But they're all not peaceful. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about making differences about how voters would actually vote. You have a situation where an incumbent is actually implementing a policy versus right, the, sort of, uh, the survey data you're looking at. In right. particular, it seems to me that an incumbent has an opportunity when uh, he or she implements a policy to explain it, to elaborate on it, right, so they have that advantage. Yes. Um, and then they also have the advantage of presenting that's a complete. And so I think of a situation like uh, the Iraq War last year, where two-thirds of, of U.S. Uh, you know, poll, Americans poll say they want uh, Bush to work with the UN and Iraq, but then he doesn't, and everyone rallies anyway. So I see that as analogous in some ways. I mean, imagine if we made inferences about electoral, about how voters behave based on the poll before the war, 